This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. It was 3 p.m. on August 20th, 1910 and U.S. Forest Service Ranger Ed Pulaski was certain he was about to die. He was running for his life down a mountainside toward the town of Wallace, Idaho. Behind him, a massive wall of flames came roaring over the top of the hill. Hurricane-force winds blasted him and what remained of his firefighting crew as they fled down the slope. The gusts propelled the blaze dozens of feet in the air. Pulaski never broke stride as he turned for a glimpse at the raging wildfire. Although the smoke had completely blotted out the sun, the ranger still had to shield his eyes. The flame's harsh glare was illuminating the entire hillside. But the powerful light of the fire was nothing compared to the heat Ed felt on his face and back. The air was hotter than an oven. Hefty chunks of flaming debris rained down around him, and an immense roar deafened him. Pulaski looked at the ragtag team of firefighters running all around him. Only a third of his squad was there. The rest had disappeared among the trees and smoke. The fire was gaining on them, moving faster than any man could run. They were never going to make it to Wallace. Pulaski made a split-second decision and hollered to his men. He and the squad turned and headed for a nearby stream called Placer Creek. If they could get to the water, they might survive the fire. But others weren't so fortunate. As they sprinted for safety, Pulaski wondered how many lives the fire would claim. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second of two episodes on the Big Burn of 1910, a catastrophic wildfire that decimated three million acres of forest in Idaho, Montana, and Washington. 
Last week, we explored how a windstorm in August 1910 caused thousands of supposedly controlled fires to spiral out of hand. The resulting firestorm engulfed vast swaths of the Rocky Mountains. This week, we'll follow the terrified citizens of the Northern Rockies as they seek shelter from the inferno and hear about the brave firefighters who attempted to stop the blaze from spreading. We'll also investigate the permanent scar the Big Burn left on the region and its lasting effect on American conservation policy. By nightfall on August 20th, 1910, U.S. Forest Ranger Ed Pulaski and his team of 45 men and two horses were still running through the forest. As the pervasive smoke choked their lungs, they had to avoid burning debris and falling trees. The only light came from the blazing mountainside, covering everything in an eerie orange tint. The savage wind was only made worse by the fire's relentless consumption of oxygen. The forest itself seemed to be in pain. The intense heat caused sap to boil and hiss as entire trees cracked and exploded in bursts of fiery bark and branches. Flaming sticks and pine cones arced through the air like demonic fireworks. As trees fell, they crushed small wildlife seeking refuge. Even deer were caught by surprise and pinned under huge trunks of old pines as they tipped like dominoes. As Pulaski and his team ran downhill, a bear lumbered alongside them, too terrified by the disaster to worry about humans. One of the rangers saw another bear wailing from the treetops as flames crept up the trunks from below. The fire roared all around them, drowning out Pulaski's commands and the cries of terrified men and animals alike. Luckily for the rangers, Pulaski boasted the qualities of a true leader, he never wavered from the group, keeping them together and heading in the right direction. As he checked on his men, Velasky noticed one of the firefighters, a 60-year-old local named S.W. Stockton, was falling behind. Suddenly, Stockton crumpled to the ground, overwhelmed by the maelstrom of smoke and heat. Without hesitation, Pulaski hoisted Stockton over his shoulder he hurled the weakened man over the saddle of one of the two remaining horses and continued to lead on foot, determined to make it to the safety of Placer Creek. Yet Pulaski's heroism couldn't save them all. Another man fell behind and was overcome by the wall of flames. His corpse soon resembled a charred log beyond all hope of accurate identification. If they failed to find shelter soon, the same fate would befall every member of Pulaski's squad. The odds of survival continued to dwindle as the fire sped on towards Wallace. The town the firefighters swore to save was now definitively beyond their reach. Meanwhile, the streets of Wallace had descended into chaos as its residents saw the fire's glow and its immense din coming in from the west, they fled to the eastern side of town. All around them, buildings swayed as they were battered by the rising heat and wind. But despite the dire circumstances, there was still hope for survival. A train at the Wallace Station was leaving soon for Spokane, Washington. As people fought to get aboard its cars, the mayor quickly issued an order. Only women, children, and elderly citizens were allowed to embark. When any men attempted to board the trains, law enforcement officers barred their entry. 
The mayor further ordered that any able-bodied man was to help save Wallace from destruction. That decree included prisoners whom the town drafted into the firefighting efforts. Two of the felons were still handcuffed as they went to the fire line. Panicked residents filled the rail cars in a state of disarray and confusion. Some carried their children, others tried to save their most valuable objects. One elderly man named John Boyd tried to bring along his longtime companion, a parrot. His son forced him to leave the cage behind. No pets were allowed on the cars, and the bird might cost John his place. Around 9 p.m., the train left the station. But John Boyd wasn't aboard. Too attached to his pet to abandon the bird to the inferno, Boyd left the train to return home, hoping to ride out the blaze with his pet by his side. By the time Boyd reached his house, the fire roared into the town. Massive hunks of flaming wood fell upon the town like a meteor shower. One particularly large ember punched through into the local newspaper office, setting chemical solvents ablaze and lighting a chain reaction of fires. The local brewery building exploded, spilling enough beer to flood the streets in a golden, knee-deep wave. The flames leapt from building to building and quickly reached the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company office. Just minutes earlier, the office had been the evacuation point for the Spokane-bound escape train. Now, the railway office was fully engulfed in flames as Wallace's remaining residents sought shelter wherever they could. Two such citizens were Ed Pulaski's wife, Emma, and their daughter, Elsie. A few days earlier, Ed had given them explicit instructions to seek refuge in the nearby Burke Canyon Dam, but Emma refused, declaring that she would stay put until the flames became visible from town. Now, Emma saw pillars of fire shooting hundreds of feet into the air as they roared down the mountainside. It was time to run, fast. As they hurried out of town just ahead of the swirling inferno, Emma saw flames leap across rooftops and engulf houses in its path. Heartbreakingly, she witnessed John Boyd perish trying to leave his house with his beloved parrot. But she didn't have time to stop and mourn. She had to save her daughter. Emma and Elsie fled to the dam, where they watched the catastrophe unfold. In the midst of the horror, Emma thought of her husband. She knew Ed would exhaust all resources to save his team on the hillside. Looking down at her daughter, Emma said, ask God to save Daddy and his men. Along the west fork of Placer Creek, Ed Pulaski and his 44 men scrambled for shelter of any kind as the fire closed in on them. They all carried only the clothes on their backs, having abandoned their tools to hasten their escape. But the creek was too shallow and shrouded in growth to offer protection. With the creek inaccessible, Pulaski decided to risk taking shelter in one of the several mine shafts that littered the area. The fire's rapid oxygen consumption ran the risk of sucking air from their depths, but Pulaski saw no other option. He ordered his men to make for a nearby mine entrance called the War Eagle Mine. He hoped it would be deep enough for them to all wait out the disaster. They raced towards the tunnel, which lay a little over two miles from their location, but the fire was gaining on them. They'd never make it there in time. 
Pulaski turned to lead the team into a closer shaft, if he could find one. Thick smoke covered everything, obscuring sight and nearly suffocating the rangers where they stood. The heat pressed down on them more and more as the fire grew even closer. They would be dead in minutes without shelter. Miraculously, Pulaski managed to find the mouth of a shaft called the Nicholson Tunnel. Standing outside with his pistol, firing it into the air to guide the men to him, he led the team and horses into the 230-foot-long enclosure without a moment to spare. Almost immediately after they entered the mine, the fire overtook the area. For better or for worse, the men were trapped inside the Nicholson Tunnel. The temperature rose fast while an immense roar played just outside the puny shelter. Overcome with exhaustion and fear, the men solaced themselves in whatever ways they could. They shoved their faces into the wet floor and covered their mouths with damp cloths for temporary, pathetic relief. Beneath the din of the fire, Pulaski heard his rangers both weeping and praying. Somehow, Pulaski and a few others still possessed enough mental faculty to try and save themselves. Wetting a set of blankets, they used them to cover the entrance, burning their hands and faces as they neared the living hell just outside. Soon, the heat, smoke, and trauma became too much. Some of the men began convulsing. One of them was driven so mad he attempted to kill one of his teammates, but before he could, he died of heat stroke. Another man, pushed to the breaking point, began walking to the entrance. He declared, to hell with this, I'm getting out of here. Unwilling to let his men succumb to foolish desperation, Pulaski drew his pistol. He warned this man and all the others that should they make any motion to leave the tunnel, he would shoot them. It was the only way to save their lives. But Pulaski never had to resort to such a desperate measure. Most of his men lacked the strength to even move anymore. One by one, they all passed out from the ungodly temperature, even the iron-willed Pulaski. By midnight, they all laid unconscious as the big burn raged outside, defenseless. Coming up, we'll follow the race for survival along the path of the Big Burn's thousand-mile rampage. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. By midnight on August 20th, 1910, 
the big burn was chewing through the dry forest and leaving a charred path 30 miles wide. In telegraph messages coming out of the disaster zone, operators spoke of flames racing across the land at the speed of a freight train. It sounded unthinkable to those outside the fire's reach. One telegraph came out of Wallace near midnight. It read, Every hill around town is a mass of flames, and the whole place looks like a death trap. The Big Burn already sounded impossibly huge, but its path of destruction was nowhere near finished. A little over 60 miles away from Ed Pulaski's mine tunnel shelter, Ranger Joseph Halm and his firefighting team of 28 men were clearing a fire line near a creek. The barrier of cleared land and water would be a strong impediment should the fire come that far. As they worked, Halm and his men heard what sounded like the rumble of a waterfall in the distance. The team was so alarmed by the approaching rumble that they skipped dinner despite exhaustion from days of firefighting. The fire was on their doorstep. Minutes later, the flames appeared from behind the hills. The terrified crew watched as a pillar of fire cleared a nearby mile-wide canyon. Spooked by the awful display, some announced their plans to run. Feigning confidence, Halm flashed his gun and ordered the men to stay put. Though he hardly believed it himself, he said, Not a man leaves this camp. We'll stay by the creek and live to tell about it. The group gathered blankets, cookware, and food, then headed toward the Bean Creek Sandbar, an area of earth only 30 feet across protruding from the tiny river. Gathered on the spit of land, they covered themselves in wet blankets and prepared for the battle of their lives. The sound of gale-force winds heralded the fire's arrival. From their feeble refuge, the rangers used what strength they had left to fill their dishes with water and douse the flames' approach. Around them, burning trees fell on all sides. A massive trunk knocked one of Halm's men into the water. The ranger worried his charge had been crushed. Thankfully, the man came up from under the water, spouting for air. But the danger was far from over. Halm's team ducked and dove for hours as other trees fell onto the sandbar. Though he presented a calm, firm presence during this time, Halm dreaded the conditions he faced. Just one shift of the wind could bring more trees crashing down or send flares over the river. Like Ed Pulaski, his only choice was to wait out the terror and hope to still be alive when it finally burned out. But that could be days. Burning a swath through the forest greater than the distance of a marathon the Big Burn blazed outwards from Ground Zero in the Coeur d'Alene Forest. It announced its impending arrival by hurling flaming trees and debris for miles ahead of the flames. The winds that brought the fire together now worked in tandem with the flames, which devoured oxygen and formed vacuums for new winds to enter. As if the hurricane winds were not scary enough, Scientists have estimated the fire's power produced atomic bomb-level energy every few minutes. Halm and Pulaski's teams only accounted for a fraction of those trapped in the hellscape of the Big Burn. Other parties, which ranged from fellow rangers to members of the army, resorted to whatever options fate presented to them. 
On the western side of the massive blaze, not too far from the Nicholson Tunnel, a group of 60 rangers commanded by 22-year-old Lee Hollingshead found themselves surrounded by fire on all sides. As the world glowed orange around them, the team became desperate. With nowhere left to go, Hollingshead led his rangers forward through a wall of fire. Barreling past the flames, his team managed to find safety on a charred patch of land, safe from any new sparks. However, only 41 of the men had followed Hollingshead to this patch. In a state of panic, 19 other men dashed for a nearby cabin. They crammed themselves inside, joined by two black bears also seeking shelter. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough room inside for the party's five horses. Tied up outside, they quickly perished in the all-encompassing heat. Those in the cabin would soon share the same fate if they didn't move to safer ground. The roof collapsed, forcing the men back out to face the disaster. The temperatures were so high, over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, that the men only walked a few feet from the cabin before falling to the ground, overwhelmed by the heat. Miraculously, one man named Peter Kinsley managed to crawl to safety. The flames burned away his clothes and blistered his skin, but he made it through with only an injured ankle. As sunrise approached, the section of the fire around the cabin began to subside, having consumed all the available fuel. In the early hours of August 21st, Ed Pulaski's men in the Nicholson Tunnel began to stir. Their faces were covered in muck, and their clothes and shoes were in tatters. But they were alive. The men crawled out of the tunnel and emerged to find a scorched earth. The mountain forest, once covered in lush greens and towering trees, resembled a wasteland. Thousands of massive trees littered the ground like pickup sticks. Many still glowed from the heat. Hoping to find relief, the men dragged themselves to the nearby river, but the water was hot and blackened, undrinkable for their parched throats. Taking count of each other, the fatigued men noticed that five of their companions never made it out of the tunnel. They had passed out from the heat and drowned in the wet muck that ironically kept the rest from overheating. Ed Pulaski's body was among them. His team suspected that he shared the same fate. After one man declared their leader dead, the group heard the downed figure say, like hell he is. Though not dead, Pulaski lay pretty close to it. In addition to seared lungs, he was also suffering from temporary blindness. And yet, he was resolved to make it back to his wife and child alive. Knowing it would be a long time until rescue arrived, Pulaski and his men began the long trek back to Wallace. When their feet grew tired, they crawled. They finally made it to Wallace, where over two-thirds of the town lay in ruin. Luckily, the town's hospitals were still standing. They were already in full operation, tending to the firefighters pouring in from the wilderness. Though Wallace was now out of the fire's path, the disaster wasn't over. 30 miles away, the town of Avery, Idaho, remained in perilous condition. While Pulaski's and Joseph Holmes' teams returned to their destroyed homes near Wallace throughout the morning of August 21st, Avery's residents began to evacuate. 
Like in Wallace, only women, children, and the elderly were rounded onto a waiting train and sent to Spokane, Washington. Left to fight the still-burning inferno were the men of the town and the U.S. Army's 25th Infantry Regiment, more famously known as the Buffalo Soldiers. The all-black regiment had faced outright scorn from many of Avery's townspeople since their arrival, but they fully performed their duties in spite of the racism and lack of support. The Buffalo soldiers facilitated the evacuation efforts and ensured all able-bodied men who stayed were well-organized in the fight. All day on the 21st, the fire blazed in the hills surrounding the town. The meager firefighting forces were spread thin and unable to stave off the encroaching flames. In the late evening, groups of firefighters made for a river to seek shelter. Upon arriving, they realized the low volume of water would not save them all. Rushing back to town, they decided to take a huge risk. From their positions below the wildfire creeping down the hills, the troops and men lit a backfire even closer to the town in hopes of stopping the inferno's approach. If the backfire burnt up all the fuel, the wildfire would have nothing to burn and wouldn't reach the town. But if it failed, everyone in Avery would be at the fire's mercy. Coming up, the Big Burn's destruction comes to an end. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. On August 22, 1910, the firefighters protecting Avery, Idaho, tried a massive gamble. To stop the massive fire speeding towards town, the defenders had created a fire of their own, known as a backfire. Hopefully, it would consume enough fuel to stop the wildfire in its tracks. According to eyewitnesses, everyone in Avery watched in fear as the wildfire approached the man-made backfire. It took about four minutes before they met. The two fires connected in an ear-splitting explosion, sending flames soaring into the sky. Moments later, the immense pillar of flame shrank down and evaporated. The gambit had worked. The fire had no fuel and had burned out. The onlookers sank to the ground in relief. The town of Avery was safe. Soon enough, the rest of the blaze would snuff out thanks to much-needed precipitation. After months of endless sun and drought, a snowstorm blew through the Rockies on August 22nd. What remained of the Big Burn was doused by snow and extinguished. The people who had been affected by the apocalyptic fire stood in the comforting chill, 
no longer smothered beneath relentless heat, but the memories from the Big Burn would last long into the future. Even after the fire was extinguished, hot heaps of ash littered the ground. Many trees that avoided the flames still ended up flat on the ground, toppled by the terrible winds. Debris choked the creeks and lakes in the region, contaminating them for years to come. The Great Fire's colossal scale affected more than just the western states. The smoke from the event darkened and colored the sky all the way to Boston, and smoke even reached some 500 miles offshore into the Pacific Ocean. Falling ash from the Big Burn traveled so far that it seeped into the snow in Greenland. In addition to leveling swaths of forest, the fire's rampage completely destroyed seven different towns. It caused a million dollars worth of damage to Wallace alone. A staggering billion dollars worth of timber was lost, the equivalent of $26 billion today. The loss of life was just as unprecedented. Of the roughly 85 people killed, 78 were firefighters, the largest number killed by any fire in American history. In the immediate aftermath, no one knew exactly which rangers survived and which perished. Emma Pulaski feared for her husband, whom she was told perished in the Nicholson Tunnel. On the morning of August 21st, Emma and Elsie returned to Wallace. Miraculously, their home had survived the flames. A few hours later, Emma saw her husband, covered in bandages, being led down the street. Ed Pulaski made it home, as did many others. As it turned out, Joseph Holm and crew survived on their sandbar. But their return to civilization took days, leading many to assume the worst. Poor Peter Kinsley, whose companions all died outside their cabin refuge, managed to drag himself out of the St. Joe Creek two days after the fire ended. His flesh peeling from his body, Kinsley spent six weeks in intensive care. Like Kinsley, those lucky enough to survive the Big Burn now dealt with all sorts of health issues. Some experienced breathing and sight issues from the relentless smoke. Others suffered terrible burns and injuries from firebrands sent flying by the fire. Six months after the fire, in the winter of 1910, many survivors died from the residual effects of smoke inhalation. Though not even 30 years old, their lungs couldn't withstand the damage. But thankfully for Emma and Elsie, Ed Pulaski wasn't among them. Although he was hobbled and forever partially blinded, Pulaski lived for another 19 years. But Pulaski's legacy long outlived him. A tool he invented with an ax on one side and a pick on the other is still used by wildfire fighters all over the world. The tool is lovingly known as a Pulaski. To commemorate his team's ordeal, the site where Pulaski's squad took refuge is now part of an official Forest Service trail called the Pulaski Tunnel Trail. Because of the heroism Pulaski and the other firefighters displayed, the Forest Service saw its reputation rapidly rise in the aftermath of the Big Burn. The service's previous leader, Gifford Pinchot, used the press from the disaster to strengthen his environmental causes. After the Big Burn, Congress doubled the Forest Service's once meager funding. 
New national forests were created across the country, including eastern states like Virginia and Pennsylvania. After seeing so many towns destroyed and valuable resources go up in smoke, wildfire suppression also became a major national issue. In 1933, a surviving ranger from the Big Burn, Ferdinand Silcox, took over leadership of the Forest Service. Understandably, his experience informed his feelings toward wildfires. Silcox maintained that these blazes must be suppressed, no matter the cost. Under Silcox, the Forest Service viewed wildfires with a zero-tolerance policy. If a ranger reported a fire, policy dictated the service must marshal the resources and move to suppress it by the next morning. This became known as the 10 a.m. policy. However, the Forest Service ignored the theories about how natural wildfires play an important role in ecosystems. As a blaze clears dry, dead foliage, new plants arise and start a fresh cycle of life. For many years, the 10 a.m. policy ensured that none of this underbrush was ever cleared, leading to decades of kindling amassing in forests across the country. Today, the effects of this policy can be seen in the rampant wildfires that often wreak havoc in California. Obviously, the state takes great measures to prevent fires from destroying people's homes and valuable crops, but this inadvertently ensures that more kindling is left to dry out instead of naturally burning away. To give an example of how bad wildfires have become along the West Coast, take the example of the 2018 car fire in Redding, California. The sheer size of the fire led to the creation of a fire tornado, an incredibly rare and deadly phenomenon. The car fire tornado boasted speeds of 143 miles per hour. Of the thousands of U.S. tornadoes each year, typically found in the plains of the Midwest, less than 1% ever reach these wind speeds. And this particular tornado occurred in the midst of an inferno. And even with all the precautions put in place, recent West Coast fires have caused massive damage. The 2018 Camp Fire of Northern California destroyed nearly 19,000 homes, while cultural sites such as Los Angeles' Getty Museum and Reagan Library came awfully close to the path of major blazes. The deadly blazes seen in the U.S., as well as places like the Amazon and Australia, make it clear that wildfires still pose a huge threat to civilization. No matter what a country's firefighting policy is, the natural power of wildfires will always be a fatal threat to people across the globe. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. 
Sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Mick Jacobs, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard.